0: Welcome to the Everything I Hate About Me podcast. I am your host and fellow bewildered soul, Eli. This month we are talking about self identity, and this week's episode is rather a continuation of episode one, in which I introduced the topic of the journey towards identity. I don't think this is a topic that can ever be exhausted as we are always in process of becoming. This episode, I come at this topic more from the angle of how and why we might become who we are. I say we, but just as a reminder, this podcast is not about you. It's about me, 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 me. But before we begin, This week's episode is brought to you by Blonde Hair Dye. Didn't get that leading part you wanted in that feature film? Try again with Blonde Hair Dye. That's Blonde Hair Dye. Why be a failed Hollywood nobody when you could be blonde? I'm going from book to book again, as is my want. Over several days, the bookshelf nearest me has fewer and fewer books, and the floor at my bedside has more and more. A passage in a book about Native American culture makes me ponder, and I sit back as the pages begin to flutter and dance in the air currents of my ceiling fan. This is the work, I think to myself. This is the work of becoming. I remove another book from the shelf, this time a book about healthy masculine archetypes. I remember the last chapter as something about having conversations with oneself, allowing the ego and all of the dissenting voices to have equal volume in the argument. We all have these conversations naturally, often we are unaware that we are even doing it and we don't admit to it because it makes us sound crazy. But we're not crazy, we are legion. All of us contain multitudes, and yet we usually silence most of our voices believing that only one of them can be right. What if all are right? What if there isn't a right? What if there's only what works and what doesn't? That's the pragmatist in me. The books on my floor range in topic from fictional stories to religious texts, philosophies from around the globe, literary criticism, a book of quotes from Native American tribal leaders, and I suppose Shakespeare is his own category. My favorite of all of the books piled next to my bed is The House at Pooh Corner. I was reading it to myself the other night, both laughing and weeping. Sorry, Hamlet. Not even you are so rich and wonderful a character as my favorite bear with very little brain. As I ponder the many conversations I've been having with this pile of books, I am reminded of my distinct lack of identity. I agree and disagree with all of the voices around me. This is nothing uncommon, even when we want so deeply for our side to be right and the other side to be wrong. The truth is that each of us has much more in common with our adversaries than we care to admit. But I will remind you that this podcast is about me, so I'm only talking about me. Go make your own podcast if you want to talk about you back to me. I have never wanted to be identified as any one thing or two or three. My interests are too varied. My alliances almost non-existent. I feel out of place amongst fans of anything, amongst the religious and the atheist, amongst patriots and traitors alike. As a youth, it seemed I was friends with everyone, but spent significant time alone because I wasn't really a jock or an actor or a goth or a prep, a good little Christian or a bad boy. I got along with all of them participated in most everything but identified with none of them when we are young we don't really have taste we think we do we convince ourselves that we do but it's usually someone else's taste that we are trying to own someone else's faith we are praying to someone else's drink we are drinking I remember when I was 16, thinking Credence Clearwater Revival sounded a lot like Guns and Roses, my mother vehemently disagreed. I loved most of my parents' old music and loved everything new I was hearing as well. I thought nothing of listening to LL Cool J or the Beastie Boys and then ejecting those tapes and popping in John Anderson, Don Williams or the Oak Ridge Boys. I still remember moments like my mother showing us kids the monkeys or handing me a copy of Three Dog Night and the Golden Biscuits. I wore those tapes out right along with Van Halen, Aerosmith, Cinderella, Bon Jovi, The Bangles and Quiet Riot. I consumed George Strait, Prince, Helmet, Run DMC, The Sex Pistols, Little Richard, Whitney Houston, Kenny Rogers, Diana Ross and the Supremes and Weird Al Yankovic with equal Gusto. I'm sure all of you good folks like lots of different music too, but this isn't about you. Back to me. I heard Simon and Garfunkel before 1992, but when my cousin Matthew played them on a sweltering day in Walla Walla, Washington, he made them seem important. Even though I was just a goofy kid with no aesthetic taste of my own, I still had some kind of poet's ego within me. I wanted to listen to important things, deep things, and then I wanted to listen to Bobby Brown sing Ain't Nobody Humping Around. This year, a friend gifted me a book on Audible by Malcolm Gladwell called Miracle and Wonder. The book contemplates the nature of creativity through the example of and conversations with Paul Simon. I wonder if Paul Simon is embarrassed by the title of the book, a quote from his song, The Boy in the Bubble, off the album Graceland. I would be embarrassed. Paul Simon is so down to earth Miracle and wonder sound so self-important. Self-important? Remind you of anyone? So I'm listening to these conversations Malcolm Gladwell is having with Paul Simon, and of course I make it all about me. I hardly ever study another artist, because I'm afraid I'll be too influenced by them. So, while I've listened to all of his albums... I couldn't have told you anything about paul simon before this book now i feel like we're brothers gladwell describes simon as an explorer type of creative all about the process constantly on the search for something that makes him want to create some new inspiration to try something he hasn't attempted before i think a lot of people today call that attention deficit disorder But I think Paul Simon is like me, paying extreme attention. And then the sparks start flying, and we are everywhere and nowhere, completely enraptured by ideas, turning every stone to find everything about everything. When we listen... Whether it's a folk tune Simon is singing solo or with Garfunkel, or playing with African musicians that sound like joy dancing, or with Brazilian musicians in mysterious polyrhythmic textures, Paul Simon sounds like Paul Simon. Simon's identity is firmly stamped onto everything he has recorded. I've been told that before, that everything I create sounds like me, no matter how different the genre of music that I've created. That is always so disappointing to hear. I've always wanted to disappear inside my creation. I used to say, God doesn't autograph the trees or the mountains. That's vanity. I think I've wanted my work to appear out of a vacuum, but of course nothing does. Though they might regret it at times, I am the genetics of my parents, passed down to them by their parents, and so on and so forth. How interesting it is, then, that I am so much like my parents, and yet so different. My father irons his genes. I think he's moved away from using starch, but if memory serves me correctly, he used to starch them. Heaven knows he starched all of his shirts. While all of my shirts growing up looked like they had been found buried in a trash heap. My father's shirts could stand up on their own. I hardly ever wash my jeans. They have to get really nasty before they go into the wash and I wear them forever. My daughter Sunny has been patching them for me. Frankenstein monster jeans brought back to life my father is very conservative i don't mean just politically i mean his personal life philosophy is to live think speak and act in a conservative manner father once told me that he believes the gospel of jesus christ teaches us to live conservative lives it's as if he and i are reading a completely different book I look at the Old Testament as a condemnation of conservatism. Stop trying to conserve the old ways, is what Jesus is shouting at me. The old ways are oppressive. It's time for something new. So I'm progressive. I want new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of living. I want exploration and innovation. I mean, look around, read a history book, The old ways don't have a great track record. Despite our differences, the most important things in life I have learned from my father and mother. Nothing is more important than family to my parents. We don't always agree, but what does agreeing have to do with loving someone? My parents have taught me through their example that if you have to agree with someone to love them, then you have no idea what it means to love. We are told, and it's generally probably true, that the older we get, the more set in our ways we become. For myself, I don't really feel that way. My poor wife has told me that I get weirder with age. I think it is because I have no way. I don't feel set in anything. Over a year ago, our family moved from Portland, Oregon to Florence, Alabama. People ask me if I miss Portland. It sounds terribly rude, but the answer is no. This has no reflection on Portland or the wonderful friends I have there, but I was never an Oregonian, nor am I an Alabaman. I don't belong to these places. They are but stops along the way, which is no way. What am I doing in Alabama? I will sometimes ask myself. Passing through, I suppose. Aren't we all just passing through? We bump into a few people, trip a few times, see a few things and then we're gone no matter how much meaning we attach to life or what we believe about what comes before or after this one life we have it amounts to the same we're here and then we're gone i think of a mother teresa type of person when i think of someone with a mission in life. A true self-identity. That's the type of person who seems to really know who they are and what they're about. I don't like it, but I think the same thing when I see someone waving a confederate flag. Sure, I think that person is an ignorant asshole, but I still see them as someone who thinks they know who they are and what they're about. In some ways, I have found myself Envying them like all fanatics. They seemingly have no idea what ignorant assholes. They are I Am completely aware of being an ignorant asshole myself, but I'm trying not to claim that as my self-identity For some people there seems to be a moment in time when they know who they are supposed to be for others There is a slow process of elimination and education until arriving at an identity. Still, for others, there might be many moments leading to different identities. On July 4th of this year, I met a young man who told me he had been in an accident that put him into a coma. And when he awoke, he had various disabilities, including 125 different personalities in his head. He said he argues with them out loud to keep them at bay. The poor guy is struggling through one of the most extreme examples I can think of of what was mentioned earlier, our ego arguing with all the dissenting voices of our consciousness. After that conversation, I feel really silly writing this episode about not having a self-identity. We all think we have problems until we meet someone who really has problems. Compared to a guy with 125 different personalities, my identity crisis is more like an identity meditation. I'm just meditating on the subject of self-identity because we can't call this a crisis. I often take long walks alone or with my dogs, it's a time to ponder my latest existential crisis. I'm not lame enough to ask, who am I? Like I've got amnesia or something. I'm not that basic. Walking under the oppressive Southern sun, I am mostly thinking about what I am doing now and what I am doing next, and if those things are what I should be doing. Should I switch and do something else? Should I be someone else? Should I find an entirely different way to interact with life? Who am I? Damn it. I am so basic. Pondering life's meaning is one of the oldest pastimes in history, and it causes all kinds of problems. When people think they have become knowledgeable, they become teachers, teaching the important things in life to others. Now everyone thinks they are important because life is important, because what they do is important. Now land is important, resources are important, money is important, and all these things become more important to people than other people, and the world becomes filled with problems. More money, more problems might be true, but so is more knowledge, more problems. I specifically have said knowledge, and not wisdom. While I agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes that with much wisdom comes much sorrow, I think the sorrow of wisdom is different from the problems of knowledge. Knowledge illuminates that there is a problem, It is only wisdom that can bring a peaceful resolution to problems, or a contentment that the problems are unsolvable. And there is a distinct lack of wisdom in the world. The confounding thing about there being such a lack of wisdom in the world is that wisdom is found everywhere. Every place on earth has its sages, teachers of wisdom. What is lacking is not teachers, but students. My head is full of the knowledge of wisdoms from around the globe, and what good have they done me? I still walk under the same oppressive sun, wondering who I am and what I should be doing. The knowledge of wisdom is not wisdom. How many times have I learned something new and thought, I did it, I figured it out. Time and again, I have been convinced that I am having a eureka moment when everything becomes clear and now I am wise. It never takes long for such pretend wisdom to fail. My first heroes growing up, as an aside, Google Docs seems convinced that when I type heroes, I must really mean herpes. Thanks. But no thanks, Google Docs. So, yeah, my first herpes, I mean, heroes, damn it, Google Docs, growing up were Davy Crockett, Luke Skywalker, and Spider Man. My first audiobook was a Spider Man comic on vinyl, wherein Spider Man had to fight lizard men from outer space on side A and the astronaut werewolf son of J. Jonah Jameson on side B. At two or three years old, I thought it was so scary. The voice acting sent chills down my spine, but I loved it. Spider Man was just a kid. Trying to do the right thing. He was just as scared of those lizard men and werewolves as I was. I had another vinyl audiobook about the life of Davy Crockett. Davy wasn't scared of anything. I admired that, but couldn't understand it. Then there was Star Wars. Nothing had me hooked like Star Wars, and as an adult, I see why. George Lucas's work with Joseph Campbell to put the perfect hero's journey on film really paid off. I immediately understood Luke Skywalker. He was weird, he was ignorant, he was weak, he felt out of place, everything was new to him, he was improvising every step of the way, relying on the wisdom of Kenobi, the loyalty of the droids, the experience of Han, and the bravery and intelligence of Princess Leia. Luke begins with false courage. His family is murdered, his home burned, and then he turns to Kenobi and claims he wants to be a Jedi. Luke has no idea what that really means, but it's this false bravado most of us need to begin any new venture. Kenobi teaches Luke many things, but none more important than to reach out with his feelings, to not trust what only his eyes can show him. It's a complicated lesson. As Luke's X-wing is closing in on its opportunity to destroy the Death Star, Luke's feelings are to use his targeting computer. We had already seen a previous pilot fail to hit the mark using their targeting computer, but what other way is there? Kenobi's ghost haunts Luke in the cockpit. Use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. Had I been Luke in that situation, I might have asked, can't I use both the force and the targeting computer? Does one have to cancel out the other? Obviously, I'm not a Jedi. I still ponder this question. Why is one way better than another? Is one way better than another. Is Buddha better than Jesus? Is Socrates better than Confucius? What about the times when all of these ways fail, when none of these sages have the answer we need? Kenobi didn't have all of the answers Luke needed, so he lied. When is a lie wisdom? When is living a lie the wise thing to do? The ancient Chinese sage, Zhongsu tells a story of Master Flatty, who worries that he has imparted too much wisdom to grandchild give it up. Master Flatty's disciple assures his master that one cannot impart too much wisdom, for if the student learns from the wisdom, all is well, and if they do not learn, they are no worse off than before. Master Flatty corrects his disciples binary thinking and tells him that teaching someone something they are not ready to be taught is like trying to delight a quail with drums and bells. How could they not be bewildered? Surely the quail is worse off after the drum has scared it half to death, confused it and sent it running in a panic. Knowledge can send us into a panic. Wisdom to the unwise can be like sounding a tornado warning siren when in reality there is only a gentle breeze. In retrospect, my life has been filled with wisdom I am not ready for. I have wanted to float into enlightenment. But I'm more like a mouse in a barrel going over Niagara Falls. And doggone it, who put the Confederate flag on my barrel? That's not me, everyone. I'm just a mouse trying to claw my way out of this thing. Luke Skywalker searches for wisdom and for what he will become throughout the first three Star Wars films. I do not acknowledge the sequels. That's not my Luke. Luke's journey finds completion as Luke accepts that he is both his father and not his father. Luke sees the good in his father not with his eyes not with the targeting computer but with his heart in a much more violent and operatic way Luke does for his father what all children should do for their parents he redeems him I'm not claiming that all children are better than their parents or that my parents need redemption my father is not Darth Vader However, this is the journey we are on. All of us will have to confront our parents in some way, confront their ideas and ideals, and decide how much of them we will be. I'm on that journey with my five children. Every day I have to ask myself if I am being the father my children need. Am I imparting the right wisdom at the right time? Does my lack of self-identity bewilder and confuse my children? Have I been the wind when they needed an anchor, or when they needed a push forward? Have I weighed them down? And my children are on their own journey to redeem me. They cannot redeem me from myself, but their lives, good people that they are, have been and will continue to be the testament that we disagree and we are loved. My father irons his jeans. You have to respect that. There goes a man with the perfect jeans who apparently believes he knows exactly what he is all about. I can't remember the last time I used an iron. What good is an iron when you are a mouse in a barrel tumbling down a waterfall? And yet, through all of my anxiety, existential crises, and lack of self-identity, I am my father's son.